Shema Yisrael. Welcome to the broadcast outreach of Living God Ministries with Aaron Budgen. Aaron discovered Jesus is his Messiah while preparing to be a rabbi. He now teaches for several organizations and is the teaching pastor for Living God Ministries. Strongly distinguishing between the Old and New Covenants, Aaron presents the scriptures from a Judaic and historical frame of reference. Join Aaron now as he reveals the reality foreshadowed and the new life we can now experience because of what the Lord Jesus accomplished for us. Sometimes in the Christian world you can encounter people who have an unusual sense of pride. And this pride comes from a person believing that they are better than somebody else. And there are a number of reasons why they might have that attitude. One of the reasons why people participate in churches or in religion in general is so that they can become a better person, a better person than who they once were. And when they improve, when they find a way to become a better person in some way, then they can compare themselves with somebody else. And when they encounter other people who are not as impressive as they are, then they might look at them with a different attitude, a different kind of attitude than they would otherwise. There is this sense of pride that sometimes exists in the hearts of individuals, especially those found within religious institutions or religious organizations, that sometimes people can be like this. In order to compensate for this, sometimes people will try to identify with someone else who is not as religious as they are, And one of the ways that they try to identify with or relate to as if they are one of them is to say something like, I'm just a sinner saved by grace. Sometimes people say that as if that is the way to reduce the amount of pride in their hearts. I personally believe that that's a way that they can increase the amount of pride in their hearts, but that's another subject area that I'm not going to get into right now. Instead, what I would like to talk about is the fact that sometimes people have an attitude. And the reason why they have an attitude is because they believe that they are someone who is greater than someone else because they have found a way to be more obedient than someone else. They believe that they are more righteous than someone else or more holy than someone else because they know something like the law of God. They know the differences between good and evil. They know what sin is, and they don't engage in as much sin as you do. Maybe they engaged in that much sin previously, but they don't do it anymore. And so people will have this attitude, this prideful attitude towards others. But in order to compensate for that, or in order to try to hide that, people will say that they are a sinner saved by grace. But this is an identification that has no basis in the Scriptures. In fact, you could say that it's an absolute contradiction to say that you are a sinner saved by grace. And the reason why I say that is because if you are saved, if you are someone who has been saved, then the reason why you have been saved is because your God does not hold your sins against you anymore. That's what makes salvation possible. He died for the sins of the world so that he can restore to anyone who would be willing to receive it the Holy Spirit that had been lost in Adam. And with the presence of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of He who is holy, the living God, with His Spirit and dwelling within you, you are made alive. You are resurrected. You were once someone who was lost, and then you are someone who is saved. 
You were once someone who was an old creation, someone who is spiritually dead, and you have now been made into a new creation, someone who is spiritually alive. And the reason why this life will never depart from within you is because he does not hold your sins against you anymore. The new covenant went into effect on the basis of him no longer remembering our sins. In Jeremiah chapter 31 verse 34 it says that he would be able to instantiate, institute the new covenant because he would remember our sins no more. So if he doesn't remember your sins anymore, how can you be identified with your sins? Technically, you cannot be identified with your sins. You are no longer a person who you once were. And the difference between the two is certainly life and death, but it's also the sin that was once held against you, and now it is not. In other words, you were once a sinner, but now you are not a sinner. You are no longer a sinner. You are someone different. Again, the reason why is because you have been made into a new creation. And this creation that you have been made into is nothing like the old creation. You were once one person and now you are somebody different. And so to identify you on the basis of your sins is totally inappropriate because if he doesn't hold your sins against you anymore, why would I hold your sins against you anymore? Why would I identify you on the basis of your sins? Why would you identify yourself on the basis of your sins? You know, I realize in the world sometimes people look at other people in that way, where we look at an individual and we identify them with the worst sin that they've ever committed. If somebody committed a terrible crime, for example, and they went to prison, then for the rest of their life they are going to be known as that person who did that terrible thing and went to prison. Or if somebody does something else that we would consider to be morally evil, however, there is no law that says that they couldn't do that, somebody does something that is morally evil, something that is definitely a violation of the law of God, but is not a violation of the laws of your community, then a person can still be identified on the basis of that sin. We think of an individual as someone who did that. Oh yeah, I remember that person. That's the person who did that or who did this. And they will always be remembered in that way. And so I understand that in the world, we look at people in that way. We always remember other people's sins. But when our God said that he would no longer remember our sins, then that takes away the opportunity for us to be identified by our sins, for us to be identified as a sinner. And so to say that we are a sinner saved by grace, to me, is a contradiction. It is an oxymoron. It fits in a similar category as jumbo shrimp or freezer burn. It is an oxymoron. It is a contradiction in terms. You cannot be both a sinner and someone who has been saved by his grace. The fact of the matter is, is that you have a totally different identity. You are somebody else. And the Apostle Paul brings this out in the letters that he wrote. For example, in Romans chapter 1, verse 7, he says, To all who are beloved of God in Rome, called as saints, grace to you and peace from God, our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. He identifies the people who he is writing to as saints. 
consider how he also wrote to the Corinthians. You know, the Corinthians were having some serious problems, and he addressed those problems in his letter. When you read about some of those things, you can't help but wonder what your church would be like if that kind of stuff was happening in the congregation that you participate in. But he addressed the Corinthians as saints. They are saints. You are a saint, certainly not because of what you have done or because of what you haven't done. You are a saint because of what he has done. That is why you are a saint. And so technically, you can never be identified as a sinner. You are always going to be a saint. Even though you sin, now I understand that we sin, we still struggle with the issues of sin. But what that now means is that we are saints who are sinning. Now, that is certainly a contradiction in a certain sense, but it's a different kind of contradiction. What that means is, is that we are people who are behaving in a way that is totally contrary to who we are. It makes absolutely no sense for us who are saints to be engaged in sin. It doesn't make any sense. Why would a saint be sinning? Why would they do that? Let me give you an example. Let's assume that we have an individual who is extremely wealthy. Let's say that they have a lot of wealth, and that can be measured in various ways. But let's assume that if this person wants something, they have the resources to be able to purchase it. They have the ability to acquire other things from other people who have things for sale, that they have things that they can trade, that they have things that they can give as payment to somebody else who has something that they want. Now, if this person is extremely wealthy and they can buy whatever they want, and let's assume that they have so much wealth that they will never be able to spend all of their wealth in their lifetime. Let's just make that assumption in order to exaggerate the point. And that certainly would not have to do with how many things are available for sale. What could make that possible is that the individual has a desire to live a simple life. We could just say that. But would it make sense for this individual to go out and steal something from somebody else? What sense would it make for this individual who has the ability to purchase anything they want, what sense would it make for them to go and take something from somebody else without paying them for it? What sense would that make? That would make no sense at all. It's totally ridiculous. Why would they do that? There is no reason for that unless the individual is just simply bored or something like that. I mean, who knows what reason there could be as to why this individual would do that. But my point is, is that this person has the ability to purchase whatever they want. And so why would they bother engaging in some kind of sin? Why would they do that? There's no reason for that. Well, you also are an individual who is extremely wealthy. You have a lot. You may not be aware of what you have, and you may not be aware of the value of what you have. You might know a little bit about what you have, but again, you may not know what it's really worth. You may not know what its real value is, especially to you as a person. Your God has given you an inheritance. He has given you everything that you need for life and godliness. You have everything that he has to offer you that you could make use of here in this world. You are extremely wealthy in Christ Jesus. So there is no reason for you to engage in sin because the reasons why people engage in sin is because they're empty, is because they are poor in spirit, poor in the sense that their spirits are empty. They do not have 
their God within them. The reason why people sin is because they're looking for meaning, purpose, they're looking for love and acceptance. This is why people engage in sin. And your God loves you perfectly. He accepts you perfectly. He no longer sees you as a sinner. He now sees you as a saint. But this doesn't mean that he lives in denial. He knows full well that you commit sin. He doesn't have some special telescope with this filter built into it, a sin filter, so that he looks at you through this telescope when he looks down at you from heaven. And he doesn't see any of your sin because he's got this special filter in his telescope so he doesn't have to see it. No, he sees it just fine. He doesn't have a problem with it, though, because he knows exactly why you sin. He is not living in denial. When your God sees you as a saint... He's not living in denial. He is instead looking at an individual who is struggling with deep-rooted issues, who sins because they are empty. He does not see your sin in the context of sin that he must punish. He sees you as his child who he has resurrected, who is struggling deep down inside, deep down inside because you are empty, because you are not turning to him for who he is. You are not receiving all his love for you. That's the issue. The reason why people engage in sin is because they are not loved by their God. We were created by our God to be the object of his love. And when a person is made into a new creation, it is then that they can rest in the love that he has for them because he doesn't hold their sins against them anymore. He accepts them perfectly. He loves them perfectly. Again, in Romans chapter 1, verse 7, it says, To all who are beloved of God. Well, who are beloved of God? All who he has saved. Everyone is loved of God who is willing to receive his love. He's got love to offer. He is wanting to give that to the people who he has created. But, you know, for the most part, people are not interested in this love. It's a very sad thing to witness, but the majority of the people in the world do not want the love of God. They do not want what he has to offer. Instead, they want the love of the world. They want other people to love them. They want a different kind of love, but they do not want the love of God. This is a real struggle that people are dealing with, that inherently, deep down inside, they need his love. But because of what they value, because they are more interested in the world, they're more interested in their own personal lives than they are in the things of heaven, than they are in the living God. And because of that, his love that he is offering is of no interest because people want something else. They have been deceived into believing that they can be complete in the world, that they can have peace in the world. But it's not there. And until they recognize that it's not there and that they will never, ever be fulfilled, then they will never turn to their God. I have known many wealthy people in my life. Now, I myself personally am very poor, but I have known a number of very wealthy individuals. And you can see that they have a certain sense of peace in their lives. They are not concerned about what they are going to eat or what they are going to wear. They are not concerned about how they are going to be able to pay for their electric bill or how they are going to be able to put fuel in their automobile. They're not concerned about the usual things that regular people are concerned about. 
They don't concern themselves with those things. They experience a sense of peace in being able to acquire whatever they want in order to sustain their lives. Now, they have other problems. They have other problems, such as how are they going to keep their wealth from being stolen from somebody else. There are other issues that they struggle with. But when I have been around these people, when I've spent time with people like this, the peace that they have is very different from the peace that I have in my heart. I can tell the difference, and they have been able to tell the difference also, that there is a different kind of peace that comes from the inside. You can actually look in somebody's eyes and you can see the difference between an exterior security that is provided by external things versus an internal fortitude that comes from the inside. There is a big difference between the two, and I have witnessed this on many occasions. The Lord your God loves you perfectly, and because he loves you, you can be at rest in him. He sees you as a saint, not as a sinner. He is not relating to you on the basis of your sin anymore. If he was, then he didn't die for all of your sins. He didn't forgive you for all of your sins. You have to decide. You have to choose what you are really going to believe. And to me, the evidence is overwhelming that he doesn't hold your sins against you anymore. And so you cannot identify yourself as a sinner anymore. You are truly a saint. He does love you because there is no alternative. He loves you perfectly, and you can trust in that. You can rest in that, and you can be at peace in your own heart because this is what your heart needs. It is only when you will receive and rest in his love for you that your heart will truly be fulfilled, and only then will you be at peace. You will never be at peace until you acknowledge and recognize that the sin issue between you and your God is over and that he loves and accepts you perfectly. Then you can experience and know what Paul meant when he wrote in Romans chapter 1, verse 7, that you have been called as saints, grace to you and peace from God, our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, the peace doesn't come just because he said peace to you. May peace be to you. May it somehow hit you like a mosquito. No, peace is there. You have peace because of what he has done, because of who you are, because he has given you all that you need, and that is the description of his graciousness. He has been gracious to you by giving to you all that you have a need for, and he has given to you all that you need freely. And we have received that by trusting and believing in the message of the gospel. In Romans chapter 1, verse 8, he says, First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all, because your faith is being proclaimed throughout the whole world. Now, what are the implications of a statement like that to say that their faith is being spoken of throughout the world? Do you hear of other people's faith very often? Do you hear about the people who are in the next community beyond where you live? Do you hear about their faith? Do you hear about the faith of people who are a hundred miles away or a thousand miles away? When you hear, when you do hear of other people's faith, what do you hear about their faith? You hear about the peace 
that they live in. You hear about the conviction and the fortitude that they have. Not so much to say no to sin. No, you hear about their willingness to experience whatever they may experience in life, that they will respond to whatever circumstances of life that they are encountering. They will do so with peace in their hearts, being at rest. When Paul says this about the Romans, I personally believe that they were beginning to have an understanding of what I'm talking about, that they were beginning to understand what it means to rest in the forgiveness of God. To me, that is the only way that their faith could have been spoken of throughout the whole world. Because anyone else can experience peace. Anyone else can experience a sense of rest in the various ways that the world makes that possible. But this is a unique type of peace, a unique rest. This is something that only comes from the inside through the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. And it's my sincere belief that when Paul was writing this letter to the Romans, he wrote this letter to people who were already mature in their faith, who were already beginning to rest in the love of God, who were living their lives on the basis of what they had as saints, what their God gave to them already, that they were living out of the abundance of what has been given to them as an inheritance. And so when Paul was writing this letter, it's my belief that he was writing to a people who were beginning to encounter this, beginning to encounter this to the extent where they stood out among all people, where they were unique, where people would be speaking of them. People would say, have you heard about so-and-so? Have you heard about the people in Rome, the believers in Rome, those who have embraced Jesus as their Messiah and what that has done to them personally, how their lives have been totally changed. Have you heard about those people? That those people are walking in a newness of life that is difficult to understand, that is difficult to comprehend. But there has been enough of a profound difference in their lives that we can say that there is something that is divine there. Something has happened to those people that those people stand out among those who are poor and those who are rich those who are weak, those who are strong, those who are of low stature and those who are of high stature, that regardless of any of these things, these people are definitely different. And we have heard their testimony that the reason why they are at peace and they are experiencing rest in the deepest part of their being is because they have believed, they have trusted in the truth of the gospel, that they have been forgiven, that they have been resurrected, that their God is gracious to them, not because of their obedience or their repentance, but he is gracious to them because he is a gracious God. And they have done nothing but received what he has offered. And that is what makes them different. That is what makes them unique. And I believe that Paul is writing this letter to them to encourage them in this regard and to encourage them to continue and to grow in their understanding even more of what they have and the implications of what Christ Jesus has done for them. I believe he wrote them this letter in order to encourage them more to continue in the faith that they began in. This letter is a wonderful letter that describes our faith, that describes the relationship that we get to enter into because of what our God has done for us. 
In the book of Romans, the Apostle Paul writes about many very important subjects. He speaks about our inheritance that we have received in Christ Jesus. He speaks about the things that we have received already because of what our God has done for us. He speaks about the differences between law and grace, the purpose for the law and the purpose for grace. In chapter 5, he speaks of the gospel, not just in the context of the forgiveness of sins, but also in the context of the restoration of life, the life that had been lost in Adam, that just as we had lost the Holy Spirit in the one man Adam or through the one man Adam's sin, so also we can now receive that spirit, the Holy Spirit that had been lost in Adam, we now receive the free gift of the Holy Spirit because of what the one man Jesus did on behalf of everyone. There are many very important doctrines, important teachings that the Apostle Paul has revealed through the book of Romans, and so I am definitely going to be spending a lot of time focusing on the important doctrines that he presents that are relevant to maturity, to our growth and maturity in Christ Jesus. One thing I definitely need to address as well is this idea that a person is chosen of God. And the reason why I need to address this is because sometimes people take the position or they have the opinion that some people have been chosen by God to be saved and other people have been chosen by God to be lost, to be condemned. In Romans chapter 9, for example, Paul mentions the potter and the clay Pharaoh and his decision not to let the people go, Esau and Jacob. There are many passages in the book of Romans that people use in order to support this point of view. I, however, look at these passages a little differently. It's my opinion that what it means to be chosen by God is that he has established the criteria by which a person can be saved, so that he has chosen a classification of people, a group of people, and that this group of people is those people who are willing to receive his forgiveness, who are willing to receive his mercy. This is a very important subject, and I will continue with this subject in the next broadcast. You have been listening to the broadcast outreach of Living God Ministries, You can hear all of our programs for free through our radio archive at livinggodministries.net. That is, livinggodministries.net. Do help us develop new radio programs and continue broadcasting on this and other radio stations. Send your contributions to Living God Ministries, P.O. Box 38353, Colorado Springs, Colorado, 80937 or use the donation link on our website, livinggodministries.net. That is, livinggodministries.net. Thank you, man.